We are in the third Sunday of Lent. This is the third Sunday of Lent. And we have been using this time to talk about how we can lean into the paradoxical truths of our faith. And not just of our faith, but the paradoxical truths of life. Life presents its paradox. Truth presents its paradox. If we're not careful, we're just going to choose one side or the other, and we're going to miss the deeper truth that is available to us if we will push through. Lent is one of those periods. It is the, the ritual reenactment of Jesus' time in the wilderness where he pushed through all of those paradoxical drives in life and, and was able to leave the wilderness saying that he and his father were one and begin his ministry. That motif, that pattern follows through throughout scripture. Why? Because it's following through in our lives as well. Lent is our time to quiet down, try to remove some distractions and take ourselves further forward to consider the ultimate paradox that Jesus died and is yet alive. How does that work? More importantly, what does that mean to us? Not just as a fact, religious, historical, otherwise. How does it affect us? What difference does it make in our lives? Pushing through in this time of Lent is the time when we can start to understand these deeper truths. So I was wondering if you've all heard of the term, the tyranny of the finite. Anyone heard that before? Okay. When you heard it here first. I thought it was a great way to describe the fact that in this life, as human beings, we all have to make choices. Right? We can't be more than one place at a time, and there's not enough time to be everywhere eventually. So we've got to make choices between this and that. Saying yes to one thing means saying no to something else. And that tyranny, that realization about our finiteness, that realization that we've got to make choices creates tension. It creates anxiety in us. Because what if we make the wrong choice? Right? Isn't that the basic anxiety that we're all feeling? What if I'm wrong? And we've learned to see life, we've learned to see these choices and life itself as binary. It's this or it's that. It's kind of a zero-sum game. We can only choose this or that. It's a win-lose proposition. It's a right or wrong proposition. And that's scary. Because what if we make the wrong choice? It's probably not too far of a stretch to say that to have a choice is to be in anxiety, to be under stress. If you're under stress or if you feel anxiety, it's because you have a choice to make. And that choice is working you. I love when I, uh, the, the analogy that I've used so many times, when I went skydiving for the one and only time that I went skydiving, I was nervous, I was scared, right up to the point that I was holding on to the window, or that, that open doorway with 12,500 feet of empty air. As soon as I pushed off, I could enjoy the ride. The choice was made. Up to the point that I had a choice, I was worried about it. As soon as I let go, this thing is going to end at the ground one way or another. It's kind of that way, right? Once we make the choice, there's a release of tension. Up to the choice, that's it. So choice equals anxiety because of the way that we've learned to look at choices in this binary sort of fashion. And that's going to continue on in our lives. Let's face it, life is a constant series of choices, right? 
So life is going to be a constant series of tension and anxiety periods for us. It will never let up until or unless we learn to look at choice differently. If we could do that, then things could actually start to change. Last week we were talking about the fact that the process is the goal. Not the outcome. The process is the goal. The more hallmark way to say it is that it's not the destination, it's the journey. But I like the process is not the goal. That, I think, puts a, a, a better, I don't know, pin in the center of it somehow. The process of making and working through our choices is the, the goal here. It's not the choice itself so much. The truth of the matter is, we can learn life's lessons. We can fulfill our purpose here as human beings, whatever path we choose. God is equal opportunity. His presence is going to be equal on any path we choose. We fret over and and stress over and have panic attacks over the choice, but the choice is really less important than making the choice and then working the choice until we realize it's time to make a different choice or a different decision. This is the way it works in life. We can learn life's lessons Regardless of our choices, it's the working through. It's the process that is going to take us to the deeper truth that we really need to learn. And as I said, all truth presents as paradox. It's light and dark and good and evil and heaven and hell, and it's this or that. It's right, left. It's all these different poles that we see as a binary choice. But if we just choose one, flop down on one side or another, build a fort, and defend our territory, we are missing the opportunity to stay in that place of tension and working through it to find what kind of truth lives on the other side of that. It creates the intention and anxiety. And if we are willing to sit in that for just a little bit longer and push through, something deeper happens. We begin to see things not in terms of the duality, not in a binary way of this or that, right or wrong, but we start to see how everything coalesces into a unity on the other side. God is one thing. God is the unity. We will start to apprehend that as we move through the process. Let it disturb us. Let it work us. Somehow to begin to see the world beyond sets of opposites, beyond choices. And so the question then becomes, how do we do that? How do we pass through a paradox? How do we work this? Fortunately, Jesus tells us, of course, right? There is a a story that I know that I quote in here a lot. The reason I do, it's the whole process in a microcosm. It's everything we're talking about in one short story. And it's a story of the rich young ruler. This is the young man who comes and presents himself to Jesus because he's stuck in a paradox. He's stuck between the horns of a dilemma. He doesn't know how to get any further forward. He's in the kind of tension we're talking about, the kind of anxiety that accompanies this sort of life choice. And because it's a huge choice, he's talking about his own eternal life. That ups the ante. So he's feeling that tension so hugely. And he's looking for a way to choose. He's coming to Jesus to look for a way, someone to tell him what is the path forward. 
not just any path, but the path, the one that he can take with certainty, the one he can take without risk. That's what he's looking for, the ultimate insurance policy. He wants to get out of the tension, the anxiety, the stress of being on the horns of this particular dilemma and paradox. Now, what's the paradox that he has? Well, first of all, you have to read all three synoptic gospels, so that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to get all the details about this rich young man. One of them says he's rich, one of them says he's a ruler, one of them says he's young, and so when we put that all together, we know that he's young, we know that he's rich, and we know that he's powerful. Now, in that culture, that meant that he had God's favor. He wouldn't have had all those things if God didn't favor him. And if he didn't have all those things, it's because God didn't favor him. That was their cultural outlook. Now, Jesus works and pushes real hard against that. But that would have been on his side of the ledger. Rich, powerful, he's got God's favor. He was also devout. He was also completely law-abiding. He was a Jew's Jew. He followed the dietary codes. He followed the commandments and, and the written law. He followed everything to a T, which made him approved by God. And not only by God, but by his religion, by the temple authorities. He was seen in good standing. So he is favored by God, and he's approved by God, pious, pure, ritually clean. He's got it all. And yet, he knows something is missing. He feels the lack. He feels the incompleteness. He feels the uncertainty. He feels the lack of meaning and purpose. Yeah, I'm extrapolating here, but think about it. If he knows that there's something still missing with all that he has, with everybody singing his PR praises, he's feeling a lack of meaning. He's feeling a lack of purpose. He's feeling a lack of of connection, conviction, contentment. These are not present in him. This is why he seeks Jesus out. Tell me what to do. He needs to know what to do. Stuck between the poles of this paradox. How does he pass through? Well, let's read the story and see what Jesus tells him. Starting at Mark 10 at verse 17. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him. Now, Matthew tells us he was young and Luke tells us he was a ruler and knelt down before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Classic Jesus, right? Ask him a question, he's going to ask you one right back. But look what's going on here. You got this rich young man on the horns of his paradox. He just wants to know, how do I choose? How do I get out of this place that is so uncomfortable for me, so unbearable for me? Good teacher, He's going to abdicate his role of working through to Jesus. Jesus is the good one. Jesus is going to tell me what to do. Now, in another gospel, it's what good thing must I do, teacher? And so now I want to know what the good thing is. Tell me exactly the thing to do. Give me the mathematical formula so I can just follow it. I want to choose. It's this or it's that. What good thing should I do? Good teacher, tell me what to do. And Jesus says, wait a minute. Why do you call me good? There's only one who is good. That's your Father in heaven. Look what Jesus is doing. He's redirecting him through a question back to him to have a direct experience with his Father in heaven. There is no substitute. I can't tell you anything, Jesus is implyingly saying. 
that is going to give you what you're looking for. The good thing that you are looking for, the good teacher that you're looking for, is the spirit that is within you and among you and in your midst already. Lean in there. Experience that. And you will know something that you haven't known before. He continues, though. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, this is the young man saying back to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And Matthew tells us that he also asks, what am I still lacking? What is Jesus doing here? He's going back to the basics. The first step in any spiritual formation is simply to follow the rules. Be disciplined to basically behavior modification. It's sort of spiritual CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, follow these rules. Change your behavior. Play well within the the community here. That is going to get you into the ballpark. But see, he's way past the basics here. He's been doing this all along. He knows how to do the obedience thing. But he knows that there's still something lacking. So at verse 21, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. I love that line. Jesus looks at this man. He sees the tension. He sees the angst and the anguish even of where he's at. He also knows that he's absolutely sincere. He knows what he says is absolutely true. He has been fastidiously following the rules, the laws, the codes of his religion, trying to get through sheer force of will where he wanted to be. But everything that he could do had taken him as far as it possibly could. And so Jesus tries to take him to the next level. He says, okay, one thing you do lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come follow me. Wow. Where is he taking him now? Sell everything. Why would he tell him to sell everything? Just as an ultimate good deed? To practice love? To take care of the poor? All these things? See, that's where the church has focused. That's where we have focused. And of course, we're thinking of his riches as only being material anyway. And so we, we, we just are skimming along the surface of the depth of what Jesus is trying to get across. Jesus isn't just talking about material wealth here. He's talking about anything and everything that we pile up in our lives that comes to define us, everything that we rely on. Whatever your talents are, whatever your attributes are, if you're good-looking, if you're talented, whatever you use as your ticket to survival, as your ticket to mold the circumstances around you to your advantage, Everything that you rely on, just your thoughts, your very belief system, the way you look at life itself, all of this is taking you as far as it can. When you get to that place where you know that there's still something missing and you can't push any further through, you are stuck at the paradox, trying to choose one thing or another. And this is what happens to the young man. At these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And of course, this just flips them out, because remember what their 
cultural idea was, right? If you were wealthy, you were favored by God. You were approved by God. So what in the world is Jesus saying? We don't have an appreciation for how this would have slapped them across the face. It's that, it's that home alone moment, you know. It's, it, we can't get there in our culture. But the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus answers again and says to them, Children, <laughs> children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And then they were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, With people, it's impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And so we've got this wonderful image of the camel going through the eye of the needle. It's a strange image. And, you know, there's many interpretations of this. I don't know if you realize that. A lot of controversy over what Jesus really meant. One of them that's come up since in the last hundred years, at least, is that if you look at the Aramaic word, the language that Jesus actually spoke, the word for camel is gamla, transliterated G-A-M-L-A. That same word is also the word for rope or a cable. And so some are saying what Jesus was really talking about, it's easier for a rope to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Okay, well, that, that still works. That's, that's cool. You know, it's, it's, it's a, a little bit less impossible than a camel going through the eye of a needle, but it's still something that isn't going to work. And, you know, the same sense comes through. But on the other hand, this saying wasn't unique with Jesus. It was an idiom and it was a saying that, that was used both in the Levant, in the, the Judean area, but later on also in the Babylonian, the Mesopotamian area. Jews that went into exile, some of them never came back, and they had a community there. And they developed a Talmud, a, a, a collection of writings, just as the ones in Judea did. Now, interestingly enough, in the Babylonian Talmud, the saying goes, it's easier for an elephant to go through the eye of the needle. Now, why is that? Because the elephant in Mesopotamia was the largest animal that they knew there. But in the Levant, in, in the Judean area, the camel was the largest animal. So they're just taking the largest animal and saying it'd be easier to go through the eye of a needle. So, you know, pick your poison there. It can be one or the other. There's one other that I heard that's really kind of interesting. But unfortunately, there's absolutely no archaeological or, or even... Um, evidence in the liturgy, or not the liturgy, the literature. But that was the saying that the eye of the needle referred to a small gate that was opened after hours when the large gate to the city was shut. Then a small gate would be opened so people could go, still go through and forward and back and forth, whatever. But large armies couldn't get through, and people with lots of arms couldn't get through. And in fact, if a camel needed to get through the eye of the needle, the smaller gate, you had to take all of the packs off. You had to take all of the baggage off that you had load that you had put on the camel. And the camel actually had to get down on its knees and kind of stoop and crawl through. That's the only way it can get through the eye of the needle. I don't know if that's true. In fact, most people say it's not true. But it's kind of cool. And I love the image there. And you can see why people would like that image. You have to get rid of all your baggage. You have to get down in a, in a kneeling position in order to move through Whatever one of these interpretations that you like, and you're free to pick whichever one you want, whichever one you pick, it's basically telling us the same thing, right? If we are willing to let go of whatever it is that we cling to, the truth is not going to be denied us. 
but only if we're willing to let go. You can't fill a filled vessel. You must empty first before you can be filled. What we already think we know becomes the filter, becomes the block to anything new coming in, especially anything new that challenges what we think we already know. Are we willing to let go? Are we willing to move back to beginner's mind, that condition of the child, seeing everything for the first time? Remember when you started doing anything for the first time, whether it was riding a bike or doing math, you went to it completely tabula rasa, complete blank slate, right? And everything was new. Everything had to be explained to you. You had no preconceptions. Why do children learn languages so fast? Beginner's mind. More plasticity of the neural pathways or whatever it is, you know? Try to teach me a language right now other than English? I don't think so. That's what we're talking about here. The rich young man's power and property, his beliefs about lawfulness, about his piety, about his devotion, had taken him as far as it possibly could go. And he was stuck. And until he was willing to let go, no further process was available to him through the narrow gate. And then you can think of Jesus, you know, the way to life is guarded by a constricted narrow gate. And the way itself is narrow, and few go by this. Because why? Because they're not willing. They're not able to let go of all the stuff they're carrying around, all the stuff they think they know. Now, the rich young man didn't literally need to sell everything. That wasn't the point. It's not that he had to impoverish himself and give everything away. But what he did need to do was to detach psychologically, emotionally, from the death grip that he had on those things, from his sense of identity with those things. They were who he was. They defined him. He thought they were his ticket to God. And until he was ready to let that go, he was simply too heavy to ascend. You know? He was too broad to fit through the narrow gate. To hold on to everything that we think we know is to have chosen a side. And that binary choice, we flopped down to one side or another and fallen away from a balanced middle, from that liminal space we talk about all the time, from that, that threshold from which we can see all of life in a balanced way. Now, to make that choice, to hold on to what we've already decided we know, that relieves the tension of the, of the decision we have to make, but it stops any forward motion. And that's our faith. Faith is motion. Faith is action. It's not belief. It's action. And when that stops, we're no longer people of faith. We have become static. Jesus would say, why are you looking for the living among the dead in our presence in that case? Because we're no longer moving forward. And that eventually will catch up to us. That staticness, that lack of forward motion, that having been stopped before we really got to the deep, deep truth on the other side, that feeling of lack, of incompleteness, becomes unbearable at some point in our lives. Call it midlife crisis, call it whatever you want, but there is a point at which we know so deeply that something is missing, that all the color has gone out of everything that we have done to sustain ourselves to date, and we desperately need something more. 
But until we're willing to let go, until we're willing to unchoose the things that we have chosen that have gotten us this far, until we're willing to reset the paradox in our lives, until we're willing to go back to beginner's mind, to the child's mind, to see things as if for the first time, to see relationships in a different light, we won't be able to see the unity beyond the duality, beyond just the choice of one or another. And this isn't just one and done. This doesn't just happen once. This is what the cycle looks like for the rest of our lives. There will always be a choice. There will always be another event, often traumatic events, that are going to come in and upset the apple cart, upset everything that we think we know, upset the serenity that our choices and our thought belief system has established for us so far. And then we have another choice to make. Do we double down and just grab on to what we thought we knew that much tighter, build our walls that much thicker? Or then are we willing to let go and try a different direction, see things in a different way? Keep the baggage to a minimum. Stay in the threshold. Develop an attitude of ongoing willingness to be able to see and embrace truth from whatever direction it comes. This is a whole different way of living life. And it's not one that's comfortable for us, and it's not one that jives with our Western culture. Our Western culture is about certainty, about staking out a claim, planting your flag, and defending that space. Even as a church, we talk about defending our faith. We talk about defending God as if God needs our defense. How do we even do that? And the peril of taking that attitude is that we stop our forward motion. We are now static. We are now within the walls of our fortress. We feel secure there, but you're not going anywhere. Jesus' direction and experience of truth is so radical that it requires a radical response in us if we're going to go there. Now, I have a friend. He lives on the other coast, and uh, we correspond, and we're talking regularly. And he accused me of something. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, how about that? He said that he thought that I had become set in my ways, that I was now static in my beliefs. And uh, that, that took me back because, you know, I believe what I'm telling you guys here, and I, I think I'm practicing it, but here's someone telling me, no, man, you're setting your beliefs. Now, I know that he wishes that a lot of the arguments or the, the things that he was, was telling me would move my needle more than it was. In fact, I, he said at one point, he goes, I just wish sometimes something I would tell you would keep you up all night long. <laughs> so, I thought that was great. That was, that was just perfect. He compared me, was comparing me to um, a clinical treatment professional that uh, his family is working with right now who is, uh, he specializes in uh, eating disorders. And he's a young man, I think in his 40s, and he's on the cutting edge of working with eating disorders and kind of breaking new ground in new ways of, of dealing with really difficult uh, issues uh, for individuals and families. And he's, 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 uh, he's passionate, he's enthusiastic, and he's, he's sensitive to all the new input and experiences, you know, clinical uh, information that comes in and changing and moving and doing things. And then there's me, you know. And uh, I'm kind of static and stayed, and I'm not moving the needle as he would like to see me move. And, you know, he is moving through the first 10 years of his 
spiritual journey, and his needle is pinging all over the place as well. And I had to really consider this. Have I gotten static? Have I gotten, have I chosen a side and built a fort here, and I didn't even realize I'm doing it? Because that's absolutely possible, of course. But I came up with another reason that I like better. I met my friend here maybe 10, 12 years ago. I started this spiritual journey 30 years ago. I was up to 20 years into my journey by the time I met him. There's a curve to this that takes place. If I go all the way back to the first years of my journey, I looked like a crazy person. It was so difficult for me to, to keep letting go of the things that I had to let go of. I was so sensitive to everything that was, was pinging my needle. New things would send me scurrying back to my books, send me back into my prayer room, trying to figure out what in the heck, how do I incorporate this? How do I deal with this issue that's come up? And, and I looked like more this young treatment professional. But what happens over time, it's kind of a funnel effect. As you continue to move down this, this path, still pushing into the paradox, not choosing side but pushing in, but more and more things kind of fall away and you, your, your, your path narrows, not in a bad way, but more and more things come into the realm of conviction with the repeated experience of something. You become more and more convinced that it's so. And more and more of your experience in life can be met with this conviction, and you can still maintain your balance. You can maintain your ability to deal with life as it presents, but also have the hope and the conviction that everything is going to be okay. And after 30 years, yes, more and more of those things have fallen for me under the realm of conviction. And so my needle doesn't ping this way, it's more like this. It's, it's shorter. And, and more and more things, yes, I am convinced of. And all I can tell you is what I'm convinced of. Now, here's the thing. Have I gotten too convinced? Have I lost the ability to be open and to move? And I suppose I can't fully answer that question. I don't think so, but it's possible, and I'm going to need to take a look at that. But I'll tell you what. I'm only one traumatic event away from finding out for sure. <laughs> The next trauma that hits me, that challenges everything that I think I know, that is taking me out at the knees, can what I am convinced of allow me to overcome, to move through, to push through that paradox? If it's not, then I've got to be really honest and say, okay, I need to let go of a lot of the things that I have built up and be willing to see this with beginner's mind. Because if I'm not, then... I have lost my forward motion. I have lost my ability to keep falling more deeply into the center of an infinite God. And that is the kiss of death. That stops us in our tracks. I'm, I'm indebted to my friend for bringing this up to me, you know, for telling me these things, because it's, it's so important to have that mirror held up to see where are we now. But there is a shape to the journey is what I'm trying to tell you. As difficult as it is at the beginning, it doesn't stay that difficult because you get used to it. You start to expect that it's going to be difficult, and then it's not so difficult anymore. And you know that the working through and the grind that happens and staying in that place of tension is where you're supposed to be. And it just gets easier and easier as you go. I don't experience the kind of angst that he's experiencing anymore that I did experience myself a couple decades ago. 
there's a floor under my feet now that wasn't there before. There, there's, a, there's a limit to the depressions that I still go through, but they're not bottomless anymore. And my recovery time has gotten shorter. Everything changes. I love the image of the, the tightrope walker. As hard as that is to do and as much constant balance as that takes, you get to the point where they can walk across that cable as easy as we walk across a floor. Yes, they're constantly balancing. Yes, they're constantly in the place of that, that tension. But it's easy for them. It's second nature for them. It gets that way after time. You don't have to look like a neurotic mess as you continue to stay in the sacred tension in the middle. That's the, that's the change. Am I still open? I certainly hope so. Jesus is willing to do the same thing, and this is what he's showing us. If we're not willing... When circumstances change, when the information is presented to us, the experience is presented to us, to completely overturn all of the tables that we have so carefully built up, then we can't go any further. We have lost the ability of being able to stay on the threshold and see clearly our camp, the other camps. You know, because this doesn't mean you don't have a camp, that you aren't passionate about your beliefs and about your causes and about the way that you think your community is going to be made better. It's not it at all. You can be very passionate. But you never see the ones who oppose you as enemy or as other. You see them as fellow human beings that still deserve your love and respect and consideration. They're just wrong, right? No. <laughs> That's it. That's the delicate balance. When Jesus goes into the temple... And we're going to be celebrating Holy Week just in a few weeks now. When Jesus goes into the temple and overturns the, the tables of the money changers, what is he doing there? He was a good Jew. His whole ministry and mission was to the Jews as opposed to everybody else. He says that outright. My mission is to the lost sheep of Israel, not to the Gentile. He was trying to reform Judaism from the inside out to bring it back to the heart of the Father. He loved his people and his religion, and he loved the temple and had reverence for it. And never anywhere in Scripture does he break the written laws or the dietary codes, but he reforms them and reframes them. He tries to bring them through to their fulfillment and not just blind obedience. But here he is throwing over the, the tables in the temple he was still in liminal space enough. He was on that threshold enough that he could see what was wrong with his own camp, his own people, his own religion. And he loved it enough to call it out. He loved it enough to criticize it and criticize the elders. And he was willing to take the consequences for that. Do you know what happens when you go against the grain in your community? I experienced that. Marion and I experienced that. You lose your community. You lose relationships. You lose the respect of people. They tell you you're going to hell and taking everyone with you. What did Jesus risk? Ultimately, it led him to the cross. To stand up and against what he knew was corruption, what he knew was wrong in his own camp. But at the same time, he could see the truth in the other camps around him. And he could celebrate others in those camps around him. One of my favorite, another favorite scene in the New Testament is Jesus with the centurion. Remember that story? If you don't, you're going to know it right now. Matthew 8, starting at verse 5. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him. Now, what's a centurion? A centurion is a Roman officer. Now, let's put this into perspective. 
a Roman officer who commanded 100 men. He's, he's a big shot in the Roman army, in the Roman legion. And he would have come to Jesus probably with his uniform on, the one that we're so used to seeing, maybe his helmet under his arm. But Rome had occupied Judea, had conquered Jerusalem 70 years before, still recent enough that some people were alive when Rome walked in and took over their nation. They were the oppressors. They were holding them under a military boot, and they were absolutely ruthless. They were extracting taxes, which were stifling to the people. They gave out crucifixions like parking tickets for any infraction, just to make an example. They stamped out anything that would disrupt the flow of their, their commerce and their revenue with absolute ruthlessness. They were hated by the Jews. They had taken away their birthright, as we saw it. They were looking for the Mashiach, the Messiah, who was going to throw them out and reestablish a sovereign nation. That's what they were looking for, not someone like Jesus. Here comes a centurion, the absolute symbol of all of that hatred to Jesus, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. <laughs> what? Picture the faces of his followers when he says that. Picture the horror. Picture the chins on chests, the, the, the sideways glances, the, the, the shuffling of feet, everything that would go on. I will come. For a Jew to walk into the house of a Gentile would be to make themselves ritually unclean. They would have to go to the temple and go through a series of rituals to be declared clean again. Pharisees would cross the street to avoid someone who was outside of the law so their, their clothing didn't even brush against them and make them unclean. And here Jesus, I will come and heal him. But the centurion says back, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For also I am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. And Jesus, when he heard this, he marveled that that word isn't really strong enough. This word has been translated many different ways. I like astonished. Jesus was astonished. He was amazed. He admired this man. He was surprised. He was taken aback. You choose the one you like. Wouldn't it be great to astonish Jesus? I mean, think about that for just a second here. What would it take? This is what it takes. Think about what this centurion is doing. Think about how he has let go of his pride, not only personal pride, but even his national pride. He is the ruling, he represents the ruling Roman Empire. They own the entire Mediterranean. And here he is coming hat in hand to a poor, dusty Jew who has no authority, no rank among his people. And not only that, he's doing this for his servant. What does this tell about this man's character? You know, there was one... Uh, Reenactment. I, I think it was Jesus of Nazareth where Ernest Borgnine played the centurion. I always think of Ernest Borgnine as a centurion. I just think he's got the perfect face for it and the perfect demeanor. 
This is the man who is showing us his loyalty, showing us his humility, showing us his devotion, even to the servants in his household, that he cares enough for this servant, loves this servant enough, that he will go to this dusty Jew, whom the Romans despised as well, to ask for help. Jesus is astounded. And he says to those who are following, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Dagger to the heart. The evil Romans, huh? And this, what he says, look at what he says next. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's saying Gentiles will come in before the Jews. He's saying there are Gentiles who are more decent, more aware, more in tune, more living the life that God has intended for us than those who have been given the promise directly. Them's fighting words. That's amazing. Jesus willing to castigate, to criticize his own people to the point of his execution while praising and seeing the truth and being astounded by it in those that were sworn enemies. This is pushing through paradox. This is keeping ourselves in that place. This is the willingness to let go of the preconceptions and the prejudices and the hatred and the feuds and everything else that keeps us bound up in one side or another. Last Tuesday, we had a, our, our regular conversations on, on Zoom, and it was an interesting one. Someone casually mentioned uh, the Dr. Seuss book's dilemma and things that are going on right now, and that led us into an hour-long discussion on everything that's going on in current events. So it was political situations, it was racial tensions, it was, it was cancel culture, it was so on and so forth, civil liberties, all kinds of things that, we're, that we've been talking about. And it was an impassioned hour. I pretty much, you know, just kind of watched for 45 minutes. <laughs> there, there was such pent-up, I think, need to talk about these things in people that they just kind of were wound up and ready to go. And there were articulate and impassioned defenses and arguments and, and expressions of people's positions on both sides. It was so really well done. You know? And sometimes it started to ramp up and I'm thinking, okay, where is this going? And then it would back off again and we stayed pretty much on the sunny side of the street. So I was proud of our group you know, and we were all friends at the end of it. But at one point, the only black man in the, in the meeting spoke up, and he said, you know, I hear what you're all saying, and, and I get it. He said, sometimes I can hear an ethnic joke, uh, a non-politically correct joke, and I can think it's funny, and I can be offended at the same time. I just thought that is perfect. I can think it's funny, and I can be offended at the same time. Because I think that's it. What are we talking about here? What are we talking about in all of this? What are we talking about in terms of just going out this door and, and walking back to our cars and finishing off the rest of our day and dealing with all the things that are presenting to us as hard left and right, hard white and black, and we see them that way because we're trained to see them that way. What if we can find it funny and offensive at the same time? 
What if we can laugh at the offenses that we feel? What if we can maintain a sense of humor about ourselves and our own frailties and our vulnerabilities and still see the humanity in the person that is offensive to us and continue to find and pass through the narrow gate, the eye of the needle, to the unity that exists between all of us beyond the seeming offenses and oppositions. That is where Jesus is taking us. If we're willing to go, if we're willing to let go, and get to the place that we can pass through the eye of the needle. Let's pray. Father, wow, there is so much here, Lord, and this is so difficult for us. But help us to hold more lightly to the things that we think we know. Help us to be willing to see ourselves, to test ourselves, to celebrate when someone holds the mirror up to us, to see if we really are still childlike enough, if we really still are seeing things as if for the first time enough to be able to continue to move toward you, to the ultimate unity behind all of this opposition that we are going to experience in life. Father, thank you for showing it to us so clearly once we can see Thank you for reinforcing it in us with the people around us who have learned to do it fairly well, with scripture, with everything that you present. And help us to continue to be willing to go through the disorientation of the letting go process so that we can come closer and closer to you each and every day. Father, thank you for your presence and all the resources and everything that you give us and have given us for your constancy, for your love. And never let us forget that we can only do any of this because you did it first. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen? All right, let's all stand.